Passing into our Advent season, which is coming up uh, starting, starting next week. And, and, and so it's weird to kind of transition from, from Thanksgiving to, to Christmas, a season which is, is marked by reflecting on gratitude for what we have to a season which for some can, can be marked by almost a sense of, of acquisition or, or uh, entitlement. So this past week um, with our kids, we've been talking about what we're grateful for, for. We're helping kind of shape their hearts to, to look and be aware of how much they have, how, how rich they are. And we have this, this great week leading up to Thanksgiving. We have some friends over for dinner. And, and then the next day in the mail, this Lego catalog shows up, which is addressed to our children so I feel like a federal obligation to not tamper with their mail, and I, I give it to them, and their eyes get so wide because this thing is like, it's a tome, it's so thick. And of course, the kids, they, they scamper off with it with a marker in their hand. They say, hey, we're going to circle everything that we want. A couple minutes later, they come back with a magazine that's dripping with ink and hundreds of dollars. Dad, we want the, the, the Star Wars Millennium Falcon, 7,000 pieces. I say, oh, Really? Well, so how much does that cost? Well, four nine nine, and then there's two small nine nines. What's that mean? It means it's half of a thousand dollars. Let's talk about stewardship, okay? <laughs> now the reality is the kids are going to get gifts, right? We we are blessed with the ability to give our kids some gifts, and it's interesting because the way that I know, we'll take my son, my eight year old son Micah. The way that I know Micah is grateful for something. The way that I know he's appreciative of a gift that he's received is that he talks about it all the time. All the time. We're trying to have a serious conversation. He reverts back to the gift talk. We're trying to have a nice family dinner. He reverts back to the gift talk. We're having a nice family dinner. He brings the gift to the table. No toys, Micah. He talks about this gift all the time. He invites me to participate in the gift with him, to share in the enjoyment of it with him all the time. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. I think the best mark of gratitude, the best mark of something that's truly grateful for what they received is not their effusive thanks, verbal thanks to you, although it's appreciated. Sometimes we say thanks so much to hide the fact that we're actually not that thankful. It's not a written thank you note. My mom made me write those as a kid. I did it to, to pacify her. The best mark of gratitude, the best mark of thankfulness, I think, is what do we do with the gift? Do we actually use it? Do we invite others into it? Do we find ourselves talking about it? I think that is the best mark of true Gratitude, And so this is going to serve as kind of a natural extension of, of last week's message, talking about the cross, why Jesus went to the cross, what did it accomplish for us. This week it's going to be, so what do we do with it? What does it mean for us and what on earth do we do with the fact that Jesus, if you're a Christian and have believed in what he has done, has died and risen for you? The text we're going to look at today 
is Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. There are Bibles available. Um, if you need a Bible, uh, feel free to raise your hand. One of the ushers will get up and make sure that you get a Bible. Um, if, if you don't own a Bible, keep this Bible. It's a gift for you. We want you to have a copy of the Scriptures for you to read, for you to enjoy, for you to take home and make your own. And as those are getting handed out, I just want to tip my hand. I, I know sometimes in sermons we kind of wait till the end. What is the main point? What's the takeaway? What's the... What's the, the, the moral or the lesson that I need to know? I'll tell you right now. Up front, here's where we're going. That Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection for you changes everything. Jesus dying and Jesus raising from the dead is not something that we just say passively at Thanksgiving around the table. I'm thankful for God. I'm appreciative of what Jesus has done. It is a gift that demands a response, to know if you have truly received what he has done for you will be reflected in what you do with the gift. That's where we're going. Now, now we're looking at Mark 5. Here's the context of this passage. Right In Mark chapter 5, Mark is very intentionally stringing together in this narrative four consecutive stories that highlight Jesus' power and authority in the face of what are hopeless situations for those involved. Right before Mark 5, we have Mark 4, where Jesus, with his disciples, going across the Sea of Galilee, they're, saying, they're in this storm and they're saying, we're going to perish. Jesus shows up, power, authority, calms the wind, calms the storm, exercises his power and authority over the natural order, and they're terrified. This story, we'll talk about Jesus, heals a man who's possessed by many demons, and Jesus shows his authority over the spiritual realm. Right after this in Mark 5, Jesus heals a woman who's been sick, who's had an issue of bleeding for years and has spent all her resources to no avail. Jesus heals her. And immediately after that, Jesus shows his power over death by healing and bringing back to life the daughter of a synagogue official named Jairus. Mark is very intentional in this story in putting each of these back to back to back to back to show that Jesus has all authority and all power. And so recognize that this story we're going to kind of zoom in on is, is simply one of a larger conversation where Mark is making a very, very big point. Let's pick it up. Mark 5, uh, verse 1. They, that's Jesus and his disciples, came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Pause there. This trip is seemingly unprovoked. Jesus hasn't, hasn't announced, hasn't prefaced this trip. They just go over there to the region of the Gerasenes, the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And we know that this east side of the Sea of Galilee was not a Jewish territory. This was the region of the Decapolis, 
which literally means ten cities, ten Gentile cities, which had been set up and organized earlier during the Roman occupation of Palestine. And these were primarily Gentiles who lived there. And we meet this guy who, for all intensive purposes, was messed up. I mean, there was just some stuff going on with this guy that, 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 that I think we would think, oh my gosh, this is incredible. I, I can't believe how bad this guy has it. He is alienated. He is gashing himself with stones. He, he is outside of society. He's living among tombs. And I think, I think, even though we don't know how long this guy has been in this state, there's a way when we read the scriptures, we see Jesus moving along with his disciples that we can almost uh, unfortunately adopt this mentality that they all kind of have this collective hive mind. That Jesus and his disciples are almost always on the same page and they, they always kind of know what each other's thinking. That is not true. You know, they show up on the east shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's almost comical how uncomfortable these disciples must have been. First of all, as we've mentioned, they are now in Gentile territory. The Jews and the Gentiles, they did not associate. Strike number one, uncomfortable disciples. This guy is living in tombs. Most likely, clefts that have been hewn out of rock where people bury their dead. That, too, would make Jewish people unclean. Three, this guy probably had open wounds. The Jewish law had rules against uh, associating with being near open wounds, festering wounds, blood. And as we'll read in a moment, there were thousands of unclean pigs nearby. Again, Mark could not have painted a more obnoxious picture of Jewish uncleanliness. Oh, and also, um, according to Luke's gospel, this guy was naked. So there's that. This would have been the worst nightmare for a young Jewish man who had up to this point so diligently tried to keep the Jewish laws. And so whether they're saying it or not, it's not recorded. They're probably thinking, why are we here? Why did we come over here? What are we doing? In here? Jesus, don't you see that this guy has cuts all over him? You realize he's naked, right? Are we even going to talk about the thousands of pigs? He's a Gentile, you know. What are we doing here? And I think maybe the question behind that is, and Jesus, why do you seem so unbothered? We have a sense that Jesus is just moving into it, despite all this. There's an intentionality in which Jesus has come with his disciples to the east side of this Sea of Galilee. And so we see the problem for this man is that he is spiritually oppressed, right? We read that earlier. It says that he has an unclean spirit. Let's keep going. Mark 5, verse 6. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he, the man we, we call the demoniac, ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. 
And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. What the heck? Okay. There, there is a lot here. And if you're thinking, uh, man, I'm going to get a comprehensive uh, course in, in, in demonology and, and have all my questions about this passage answered, um, no. Uh, here's the thing. There's some things that we need to point out about this passage, right? The, the demoniac comes to Jesus and immediately he accurately and clearly identifies who Jesus really is. Now, even though in Mark's gospel and in all the gospels early on, there's the sense of, who is this Jesus? Is he a carpenter? Is he a rabbi? Is he the Messiah? Why does he use son of man? That's such a, a confusing term for us. It can mean a lot of things. For man, knowing who Jesus was did not become clear until later in his ministry. But in the spiritual realm, everyone knows exactly who Jesus is and exactly what sort of authority that he has. The, the, the demon, uh, speaking through this man, says, what business do we have with each other? L literally could be translated as, what do you want with me? What do you want with me? Now, now Jesus asks for a name, and this guy says, legion. Uh, for, for, for a Roman legion, a Roman uh, number of troops, a legion was about 6,000 plus soldiers. And some commentators have said, you know, it's probably not 6,000 demons. It was probably a more of a generic general term to say, hey, there's more than a few of us in here. And we know that because right after he says, for we are many. So did this guy have 6,000 demons in him? What does that even mean for us? I don't know. Did he have more than one? Yes. Absolutely. And it was the thing that has driven him out here. He's driven, driving him mad, driven him away from society, driven him away from fellowship, which has caused him to be living in these tombs. But throughout this narrative, we understand that these demons, this legion, at every turn recognizes who's in charge. And so they ask for permission. They submit to Jesus. They accurately reflect and share back with him his identity. I know who you are, Jesus, son of the most high God. Now, I don't have a lot of answers to this whole asking of permission. I don't know why they wanted to be cast into the pigs rather than be cast into something else. I don't understand the whole the part of the pigs running down into the sea and dying. I know there's some Jewish satire in there about unclean spirits going into unclean animals and then dying. I don't have answers. If you guys want all your answers to your deepest uh, theological, demonological questions, um, rolly at discoverydavis.com. <laughs> org. There's a lot going on here, okay? And, and the reality is the purpose of the sermon isn't to get into that so much, but I, I, we need to address it, okay? So we're going to keep going. We can talk more after. The solution. Believe here, this event, this healing is just that. We should not read into it eternal salvation, we should not necessarily read into it forgiveness of sins or, or reconciliation with a holy God. We should not necessarily read into it 
um, the absence of fear of punishment for sins. It is a freedom from a spiritual oppression. And this will be important for us as we keep going. Now, Mark 5, 14, we'll pick it up there. It says, Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. So the people who saw this started to go out and tell people about it. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind. The very man who had the legion. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him, that is, implore Jesus, to leave the region. It's remarkable. Jesus heals a man, does a miracle that is now attested to by the people who have come and witnessed this guy. And their response is, yeah, Jesus, we need you to get out of here. Fear. Their response is fear. And I think that that should tell us, hey, when God shows up in our midst, in your life, we should not always expect it to conform to all our genteel conventions about how God might act. I think we always have this idea of if God acts, it's going to look like this. Guys, if we've learned anything from this past paradoxology series is that it's hard to pronounce. And it's that God's way of operating rarely, if ever, conform to our expectations. In fact, if God only acted in ways that, that, that maintain our, our, our comfort and our categories, it's probably not God. People seeing Jesus do something miraculous and freaking out about it and being terrified and fearful is not new to the story. Again, the very story before this is Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. The response of the disciples is that they too were frightened. They recognized that they were in the presence of someone they did not understand and they could not control. Verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. This man has been freed from this demonic possession. He wants to follow Jesus. Who doesn't want to follow Jesus? And Jesus says this, maybe the surprising thing of, no. I want you to go back to your cities and tell them all that God has done for you. This man has a new lease on life. He can re-enter society he can go back to all his friend relationships. He can go back to his occupation. He has been saved from the social alienation, the economic alienation, all the forms of alienation that plagued him because of this demon that possessed him. And it's important to note here that this man actually goes and declares what God had done for him. He actually goes and does it in light of what Jesus has done for him. The title of the story is The Grateful Missionary. He's the grateful missionary. He's the unlikely missionary. 
His mission is born out of the gratitude for what he has received from Jesus. And the response is he's going to go tell everyone about it. Now I want to use the liberation of this man, his healing. And again, he wasn't freed from his sin. He wasn't reconciled to God in a way that when we talk about reconciliation, forgiveness for sins, um, no condemnation uh, for our sin. But he was freed. Jesus did something miraculous for him. And I want to use this healing and this man's response as an analogy for our deeper spiritual redemptive liberation from sin that Jesus' death and resurrection has accomplished for us. So when we go back to Mark 5, we look at how this guy is described. We're not going to read it again. But we, 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 see the, we see the gashing of stones. We see the living in tombs. We see the nakedness according to Luke 8. And we might be tempted to say, well, of course he told everybody. I mean, look at who he was. Look at the state he was in. Jesus came in. This man's life was radically changed. It makes sense that he would go and tell everybody, look what he's been saved from. Of course he would go to the Decapolis and tell everybody about what Jesus did for him. We look at this man and we would say, he has all the outward signs of being lost. Right? If, if there was a police lineup of five or six people and, and there's this guy, you know, person number one, and there's five other guys, and someone says, which one's the lost one? We'd say, yeah, maybe the naked guy with all the cuts? Right? We, that's what we do. Because he has all the outward signs of being lost. The danger, however, is that that judgment is predicated on the assumption that we know what actual lostness looks like. To be truly lost, to be alienated from God. Not all things are as they seem. Not all people are as they seem. It's easy for us to, to hear a story like this from, you know, these comfy chairs, our, our pour-over coffees, and think something like, Ugh, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. You might be a Christian, you might say something like, yeah, I may have been lost when Jesus saved me, when I believed, but I wasn't that lost. Like somehow saving us was easier or less costly for God. Maybe we might even think that we did God a favor by not being so outwardly and obviously messed up. And the Bible says, yeah, you're right. Actually, spiritually, you, you weren't like that guy. You were far worse. Right? Some have said that the gospel says that you are far more wicked than you ever dared believe, but you're more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope. So the problem for the demoniac was spiritual oppression. In a much bigger sense, and again, we're using this man's story and his response as an analogy for ours, his problem was spiritual oppression. Ours ultimately is spiritual death. 
right? The demoniac's problem led them to be excluded from an earthly society. Our great spiritual problem is that it could lead to eternal exclusion from God's kingdom. And this is true of all people, all time, everywhere. Look what it says in the psalm, Psalm 53, 2 and 3. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. About a thousand years later in the New Testament, Paul writes, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He also writes that the wages of those sin is death. In the story of the demoniac, Jesus comes to free him from spiritual oppression. For us, the solution, Jesus comes and frees us from spiritual death. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we had nothing to offer, while we brought nothing to the table of merit, Christ died for us. Paul writes elsewhere, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. If you're a Christian, you were not simply healed from demon possession. You were brought back from the dead. In the invitation of the scriptures, the invitation which I I hope we, if you're a Christian, you never tire of sharing and inviting people into is this. John 5, 24 and 25. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This is the invitation that if we hear Jesus, if we believe in God whom he sent, who sent Jesus, you will be saved. And it doesn't mean that your bank account will grow. It doesn't mean that your your health will be restored and and everything will be cupcakes and rainbows. In fact, outwardly, your life might get harder and harder. But below the surface, below the externals, below all that's happening in our sensory realm, something dramatic will have happened. You will have passed from death to life. You will have passed from a future in hell, separation from God, alienation from his kindness, from his mercy, and from his grace, and from his provision, which he is constantly lavishing upon us, to a place where you can have confidence and security that when you die, you will go to heaven. You will experience a wholeness that you have been searching for your entire life. You will finally be free. And before you get there, it will be a life marked by living presently with Jesus as Lord in his kingdom. And it will be a beautiful, beautiful thing. And that's the invitation. 
If you are a Christian, I hope you know this. You've heard this. You, at some level, have believed this. If you're not a Christian, the invitation is before you. If you have questions, come talk to me. Talk to staff. Talk to the elders. I want to answer questions. To, to be very plain, I want you to believe this. I want you to have this. I want you to pass from death to life. When we look back to Mark 5, the very end, 5 to 18, we see the response of this man. He wants to follow Jesus. Jesus says, no, go show yourself to the Decapolis, those 10 Roman cities, and declare to them all that God has done for you. The response of the demoniac is the proclamation of healing from spiritual oppression. Our response ought to be the proclamation of resurrection from spiritual death. Now, perhaps everything I've said so far is preamble to that main point which I told you I was going to make. In fact, you might be hearing all this and say, yeah, I learned this in Sunday school when I was six. I'm convinced that the best measure, true measure of our gratitude for what God has accomplished for us in Christ is our sense of mission for Christ. It's not how many times we say thank you. It's not how many times we, we, we verbally reaffirm our commitment to God. But like my son Micah, the, the best sense of gratitude or thankfulness is his his constant desire to talk about this thing, to, to invite me and to participate and to share in the joy of it with him. That's how I know he's truly excited and truly grateful for what he's received. The best measure of our gratitude for what God has accomplished for us in Christ, in his death and in his resurrection, is our sense of mission for Christ. Which is to say, Christian gratitude is not a static thing. What we have received demands a response. It's not just the folding of our hands, again, at the Thanksgiving table, telling people as we go around that we're thankful for God or appreciative of Jesus. It's a life devoted to obeying, following, heeding, and worshiping Jesus as Lord with everything that you have. Paul writes it this way. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let me read verse 15 one more time. And he, Jesus, died for all so that they who live, us, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. There's this quote in this book by, by Frederick Buechner where he's, he's, he's talking about um, the idea of what would it be like if someone in, in a wartime situation sacrificed his life for you? What would be kind of that internal dialogue that you're thinking as this is all, all, all happening and as you're processing this man who has just died for you? 
He says this, I have a feeling that to have somebody else pay such a price for us would be almost more than we would choose to bear. I have the feeling that given the choice, we would not let him do it. Not for his sake, but for our own sakes. Because we have our pride, after all. It threatens our self-esteem, our self-reliance. And because to accept such a gift from another would be to bind us closer to him than we like to be bound to anybody. And maybe, most of all, because if another man dies so that I can live, it imposes a terrible burden on my life. From that point on, I cannot live any longer just for myself. If what he would have done with his life is going to be done, then I've got to do it. So maybe I would have prevented his dying. If I could, but since it's too late for that, I can only live my life for what it truly is. Not a life that is mine by natural right to live any way I choose, but a life that is mine only because he gave it to me. And I have got to live it in a way that he also would have chose. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Christians, if you truly believed that you had been saved from an eternal spiritual death, we would, all of us, myself included, live and act very differently. We would not be able to share the story of who we were and who we are. We would constantly, like my son, be inviting people into participation in it, welcoming them to enjoy what we have. Think of it this way. I love Pastor Steve. What's, what's, you know, last week Steve was talking about the warriors, and you know, the warriors have fallen on hard times. And let's just say one day Steve's up here preaching, and I don't know if he like checks his phone while he's preaching, but let's just say he's checking a warrior's score, and they lose again, right? And let's say he's so, he's so shook by that that he, his, his heart literally breaks. And what if he, he, he dies? Okay? That's not the end of the story, okay? Let me finish. He, he literally dies from a broken heart, and we're here thinking, oh my gosh, Steve's dead. And we're, we're crying, we're weeping, and, and in his last gasp, he, he reaches up his hand and he says, we have an app, right? right? And the EMTs come in, the paramedics come in, and, and you know, they're trying to resuscitate him. We're praying, we're weeping, we're crying, we're, we're beside ourselves. He died of a broken heart, there's time of death, and we're thinking, what do we do? And a few minutes later, all of a sudden, <gasps> Steve comes back to life. We would be more beside ourselves. We'd be like, no way. He was dead. We saw it. We can attest to it. Now he's alive. This is incredible. This is unbelievable. What if after that, he goes home, and, and as he's getting out of his car, he sees his neighbor, and he says, hey, neighbor. The neighbor says, hey, Steve, how was church today? What if Steve says, yeah, it's all right. It's pretty good. It wasn't my best, but, you know, it was my worst. Okay, see you later, pal. No, Steve would say, neighbor, Bob, Fred, I don't know his name. He would say, I died. And I came back to life. And the problem with this story 
is that the neighbor wouldn't have to ask how he's doing, how church was. Steve would see the neighbor and say, Bob, Fred, neighbor, friend, let me tell you a story. I died and now I'm alive. And we do this all the time. Even though if you're a Christian, what Jesus has done for you It will forever be, without contention and unequivocally, the most defining characteristic of who you are. To know who you are at your essence has to be that you were dead and you are alive. We should never be better evangelists for our favorite coffee shop, for our favorite sports team, we should never be better evangelists for our church than we are for Jesus Christ. Now, we looked at Mark 5, 1 to 20, but I want to read verse 21. When Jesus has crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. The story starts with him going over to this man on the east side of the seashore, the region of the Gerasenes. There's this one event that happens. In verse 21, now they're coming back, which begs the question, we should ask the question, why did this event happen at all? Who was this for? Was it for the man, the demoniac? Was it for the people in the Decapolis, these Gentile cities? Was it, was it Jesus teaching the disciples something? Was it for us? God in his infinite wisdom, knowing that these stories would be written down and canonized into scripture and that we'd be talking about them in an environment like this 2,000 years later? Who was the story for? What did this accomplish? And if it is for us, What's the takeaway? We're moving into this Advent season, which is a season of looking ahead to the coming of Jesus. We're going to be starting in the Gospel of Mark, or sorry, Gospel of, of Matthew, chapter one, next week. And as we're transitioning from this Thanksgiving to this Christmas season, the, the question I have for us, the question I've been asking myself. What has your thankfulness and gratitude for Christ moved you to do? What has what Jesus did for us on the cross caused us to step into or to reconsider? And I'm thinking relationally, socially, economically, politically. There is no area of our life, no category that should be exempt from the effects of what Jesus has done for us. What has it moved you to do? What will it move you to do? If Christian gratitude is not a static thing, but it demands a response, what has it moved you to do? What will it move you to do? What has it moved you to declare? What will it move you 
to declare. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship. God, thank you for uh, this fellowship, this church. Uh, we are grateful um, for this space. We're grateful for your word. Uh, we are grateful for... Um, oh, we're grateful for a lot and, and far less grateful than we ought to be. But Lord, in the, in the midst of all that, in the midst of us counting our blessings, in, in the midst of us um, thinking about how much we have, how much we've been given, I, I pray that there is a, a place in our heart where Jesus, we, we are uh, grateful most for you, that you are our greatest treasure. And God, I pray that uh, even as we, we, we stand, we raise our hands and worship, or we sit and we pray, or we confess, or we just meditate on who you are, God, that you would make Jesus' death and resurrection for us so compelling, so real in our life that we would be haunted and just unnerved if we didn't do something with it, if our devotion for Jesus was just verbal. God, help us to live as if you truly are Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.